From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll speak with Katha Pollitt about a new book of advice for men. But first, Joe Biden went to Tulsa on Tuesday to commemorate the fact that 100 years ago this week, in 1921, a huge white mob attacked an all-black neighborhood there. It was one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history. Historians think it left 300 dead and maybe 10,000 people homeless. For comment, we turn to David M. Perry. He's a journalist and historian whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Nation. He's also on the staff of the History Department at the University of Minnesota. Last time we talked here, it was about Ilhan Omar. We reached him today uh, in the Twin Cities. David Perry, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Tulsa in 1921. I'm an American historian, but I did not learn anything about Tulsa when I was in college or grad school. In fact, I didn't really learn anything about it until the last couple of years. You know, briefly, in the decades after the Civil War, freed slaves looked to Oklahoma, then a frontier territory, as a place black people could establish their own towns, and they did. 45 black towns, and then oil was discovered. Tulsa became an oil boom town, and the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa became a prosperous black neighborhood. And then 1921, remind us what happened, the facts of the massacre. Sure. And, you know, this is the work of of many historians who've been trying to tell this story more accurately and in ways that are more rooted in the voices of survivors and descendants. In 1921, a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. Uh, There, a lynch mob gathered and and two different groups of black men showed up armed to defend him. Uh, One of the whites grabbed the gun from one of the the black men. It went off. A gunfight ensued, leaving many dead, mostly, mostly the black men. And then there was a period of incitement when in a very organized, very deliberate fashion, large groups of whites descended upon the Greenwood neighborhood, burning, killing, and attacking. The local authorities rounded up mostly black people and actually set up what what I like, and I'm not alone, what I like to call one of the many concentration camps in U.S. history where they created this this camp for involuntary detention of thousands of people um, based on nothing else but being black and in Tulsa. The thing that happened next, after all this violence, all the murder, was then there was a really very systematic and deliberate cover-up and rewriting of the history, a writing of the history as a a race riot rather than a race massacre, erasing the story in some places, and otherwise just saying, listen, this was white white journalists, white historians, white preachers. I just read a, a long list of reports of what the white preachers of Tulsa were saying basically said that black Tulsans started it and they got what they deserved and it was and they rioted and were put down. In this case we can say really very clearly that the distortion and erasure of the Tulsa race massacre was a deliberate choice and a deliberate choice by the people who benefited from it, who perpetrated it and whose whose supporters and followers perpetrated it. You spoke with one of the key historians of the Tulsa massacre for the nation, Carlos Hill. He's chair of the African and African-American Studies Department at the University of Oklahoma. He's also the co-creator and co-leader of the Tulsa Race Massacre Teachers Institute, which trains K-12 through teachers about how to teach 
the massacre's history, and he's on the steering committee of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission. More about that in a minute. You spoke with Carlos Hill about his work. Tell us about how he teaches this history. So I got into talking to Professor Hill because he's got this essay coming out in the American Historical Review. It's the official publication of the American Historical Association. So it's a big deal. And the reason this matters is that the way that if you're not a historian, the way that you get taught history is based in part on the way that your history teachers get taught, who get taught by professors. He wrote this very vulnerable essay for this elite publication talking about uh, the toll in which doing this work takes, but also why it matters, why historians need to be engaged in the community. And this isn't just an abstract project for him. He has put himself at the service of Tulsa, of Black, of Black Tulsa, of, the, of survivors and descendants, and, and trying to say, well, I have these skills as a historian. What can I do? What is the thing or the things that I can do uh, to serve my community? And the answer is, first of all, he's written an amazing book um, that takes pictures, photographs taken from the race massacre, mostly by, by white people who wanted to document the riot, but he puts them right next to testimony, page to page. So on one side, there's a picture. On the other side, there's three or four lines of text from a survivor um, who experienced it. And he puts them next to each other. And it is one of the most powerful books I've read in a long time. Uh, but also he has developed this institute to help teach teachers so that teachers, and again, it's not just, he's very clear about this. It's not just that he's trying to, to teach uh, white historians or white history professors. I'm a white historian, how to teach this history better, which is good. Cause it's, it's some, you know, we do need to be able to, I need to be able to teach this history better, but also he's very clear that this is not a history that black Tulsa had at their fingertips. They too, they had some testimony, they had some in, inchoate memories, but their memory, their narratives were also broken, again, quite deliberately. And so he's working with the community to piece it back together and to, and to help make sure that the next generations of historians and history teachers and students, really everyone, gets this narrative and, uh, and, and learns it. A famous novelist from Mississippi said the past is never dead. It's not even past. And that's certainly true right now with the history of Tulsa in 1921. Uh, there's a conflict going on right this week, mostly about reparations. The commemoration event scheduled for Memorial Day was canceled in Tulsa after Stacey Abrams and John Legend pulled out. That event was sponsored by the official Centennial Commission, which has raised $30 million to build a history exhibit center about the massacre. But the survivors and their descendants have been arguing for a while now that they should get some of that $30 million as reparations. The local commemorative commission says restitution should be the responsibility of the government, not private philanthropy. And indeed, 25 years ago, in 2001, a commission convened by the state legislature issued a report that concluded that payment of reparations, quote, would be good public policy and do much to repair the emotional and physical scars of this terrible incident in our shared past, close quote. But nothing came of that report. And the issue was revived just in the last couple of weeks when the three known survivors testified before Congress on May 19th, including this remarkable woman, Viola Fletcher, who is 107 years old. The lawyers representing the survivors and, their, and the descendants of 
the massacre, said they were seeking a million dollars for each of the three known survivors, a $50 million pledge to a fund for survivors and their uh, descendants. Uh, This commission is made up of local people, elected officials, community religious leaders, a few historians, including Carlos Hill, who you talked to. He's on the steering committee. Uh, You talked to him before this event with Stacey Abrams and John Legend was canceled. I wonder if if you have any comment on this controversy about reparations and and who should pay. Well, I'm not going to weigh into where that $30 million should go to because I feel that's really not my place. But I can say that I think reparations make a lot of sense, that the economic costs of this kind of violence is measurable. I myself am Jewish, and I've thought a lot about the ways in which Jewish wealth was taken. We've, we've had these conversations in other contexts that we should continue to around the, the reparations owed, both for the descendants of enslaved people, but also for the descendants of events like the Tulsa massacre, where we can really, I mean, it's not even past, right? There are still survivors today, and certainly their, their direct descendants are very clearly still impacted by uh, the destruction of, of what otherwise could have been generational wealth. I think there's a temptation of outsiders to say, well, you know, stop being greedy, stop fighting for the money. But I, I think we should reject that temptation. We should look directly at it and say there is there are real costs. There are long-term costs as a result. We can measure them. We can figure it out and we can start trying to repair that damage. And that is part of the the work ahead of us as a nation, if we can face it, is to repair that damage. I can tell you I'm not super optimistic that in general, as a nation, we're going to do that work. Um, but I do hope that in some place like Tulsa, where it's a little more finite than, say, slavery in U.S. history, though, again, I'm in favor of that, that we can, um, that we might get get somewhere. And another way that the past is, uh, is still with us in Tulsa is that the governor of Oklahoma, a Republican named Kevin Stitt, who had been a member of this Centennial Commission, was removed as a member after he signed a bill passed by the legislature a couple of weeks ago, which bans the teaching in Oklahoma of critical race theory. The bill states that uh, Oklahoma schools are not allowed to teach the concept that a person, quote, by virtue of his or her race, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, close quote. It also covered sex, i.e. men shouldn't be responsible for things that men have done in the past. This bill would seem to contradict the previous action by the legislature endorsing the payment of reparations to survivors. Let's talk about the Republican campaign in Oklahoma and elsewhere to ban the teaching of critical race theory. Yeah, I mean, I think that really shows you how important critical race theory is, even when (laughs) they don't define it, right? Because critical race theory is, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about it. One of them is to talk about the ways in which particularly anti-black racism, but racism more broadly, is embedded in American society. And to say you can't teach that is, I think, antithetical to what history is and what we should do. Although, not a new phenomenon, the idea that history should be leveraged only for a certain kind of majoritarian patriotism is not a new idea. Um, but it does have this new manifestation, and Republicans have latched onto this phrase, critical race theory, uh, as, as a way of making the majority, making people who, in fact, hold the power feel like they don't have to be held accountable for the power, feeling like it's not their, it's not their problem. 
I think it's not something that any historian should endorse, that any legislator um, mandating that some kind of content is illegal. I think that's not a pathway that, that we should go, but it is, it's happening very fast on the right. And one of the funny things about this conversation for me is that I have always understood critical race theory as really a critique, not of the right wing, although that too, but a critique of kind of the center left, a center left that believes that through existing institutions, we can move our way incrementally towards justice. And that critical race theorists say, no, those institutions are racist in their foundations, like the law it comes really out of law school, that the law is racist in foundations and will not be a tool we can use to move towards justice. So that's a very nuanced and complicated debate. Um, but between two sides of people who believe in justice, how do we get there? The right is not part of that conversation, presumably, um, at least not, not certainly not the far right. But so now critical race theory is being just used as a way to to bludgeon the idea that racism is important, to attack the idea that racism, you cannot understand the history of this country without understanding racism, and to attack the idea that racism, both current but also historical, still shapes who we are today, um, and that a more just society would address that. And one way we could address that is through reparations. There may be other ways to address that, but that the details can be debated, right? The details of to what extent does the law embed racism? To what extent can we use laws anyway to 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 fight it? I mean, these these details are are debatable, but I think the the fundamental truth is not. And I think we need to mention just briefly that there's a, a part of the history of race in Tulsa is a recent killing by a cop of an unarmed black man with his hands up. This was a traffic stop in. 2016, which we can all see on video, Terrence Crutcher uh, was his name. This was, you know, five years ago now, long before the the last year of protests about this. But Tulsa is another place where the cops have killed unarmed black men in traffic stops. Yeah, you know, I, I just saw a statistic. I, I haven't dug into it deeply, but it seems plausible that Tulsa is, in fact, in terms of police killings that black people in Tulsa are killed at a higher rate than in New York City or Chicago or Atlanta or Minneapolis. You know, again, in terms of this critical race theory issue, there's arguments about policing. Can police be reformed or is anti-blackness uh, built into American police structure in a way that is um, indelible and so has to be removed? To what extent is, uh, you know, the police complicity in the 1921 massacre in Tulsa and police complicity in the in violence against black men in Tulsa today connected. Well, I would say the connections are pretty strong. Um, and again, what we do about that is a matter of debate, um, but that the connections are strong, that the history is strong, that it's not a coincidence that these places where there's these historical moments of anti-black violence and contemporary anti-black violence are in the same place. It's just not a coincidence, predictable and understandable even as the future and the next steps remain murky. Carlos Hill, the historian in Tulsa who you spoke with, concludes that, quote, with the activities surrounding the 100th anniversary of the massacre, working towards healing history has taken the center stage, close quote. I think it's turned out that what Carlos Hill calls healing history is much more difficult than many people had imagined. Well, that's not the job of history. History is not here to promote healing, although that could be a goal of historians. And that's, I think, what, what Carlos Hill is really saying, 
is that as historians, we have a very specific kind of skill set. We have tools, we have authority, we have um, you know research practices, we have the ability to take lots of information and distill it into coherent narratives. And then to what end are we putting those narratives? And Hill is saying we should put them towards healing. But healing doesn't mean we just all let bygones be bygones and get together and hold hands and sing, sing hymns. Healing history requires the historian saying, this is the harm. These were the perpetrators. These are the victims. Here are the consequences. And now if we want to heal, we actually have to repair the wound rather than just ignoring it. David Perry wrote about the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 and its history for The Nation magazine. You can read his piece at thenation.com. Thank you, David. This was great. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Now it's time to talk with Katha Pollitt about advice for men. Katha, of course, is an award-winning poet, essayist, and columnist for The Nation. We reached her today at home in New York. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, when I saw that your new column is about Jordan Peterson, I immediately had a question. Who is he? (laughs) You're not alone. My friends are so out of it. (laughs) They all have the same response. Who? Who? What are you talking about? Jordan Peterson is immensely famous. He, his first book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, sold 5 million copies. I don't think you and I together sold even half of that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's been slated for translation into 50 languages. But even more impressive than that, because a lot of people can buy a book and then, as you know, not read it, um, his YouTube channel has get this 3.68 million subscribers. So you say these best-selling books are crammed with references to Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, the Bible, Jesus, and Jung. We're talking about big-time thinkers here, Uh, but what is the message that he finds in all these big-time thinkers? You say it's men should work hard, be responsible, and make your bed. Not sure that's really what Jesus said. Uh, (laughs) Or Dostoevsky, but but Katha, what's wrong with saying men should be responsible? Isn't isn't that what you want too? Well, don't forget the ancient Mesopotamian deities and <laughs> Isis and Osiris, who also were probably not too big on making their beds and figure, <laughs> figure uh, significantly in this book. And we should mention he's the reason I wrote about him is there's a, a new volume. Yes, more rules, more, more rules, twelve more rules for life. Um, well, I think. I think this book, um, the kind way of speaking about it is that it does speak to um, a great confusion that many men feel they they want to get with the program, but they don't really know how to do it. And they want a purpose in life and they don't have one. And of course, women want a purpose in life, too, um, but they're not fewer of them are going to Jordan Peterson for that. Um, he's he's also quite anti-feminist. Let's start at the beginning here. What is Jordan Peterson's rule number one? Stand up straight with your shoulders back. So you're saying five million men paid $26 to be told stand up straight with your shoulders back? What What is going on here? That's not all. Uh, rule 12 is... Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. 
Uh, and I, I see that reduced you to silence. <laughs> I'm stunned. Well, I'm, a what? Big, I'm a big cat person, so I, I'm okay with that one. I like cats too, but I don't pat them on the street because they, a lot of them don't want to be patted by strangers. I know, but Jordan Peterson wouldn't care about that. <laughs> it's not about what the cat wants. I looked up the publicity for his new rules, his new book, and according to the publicity, the thesis, the book has a thesis, which is, too much security is dangerous, and that's because, quote, unchecked order can petrify us into submission. I, I think we have to agree that we do not want to be petrified into submission. Uh, yeah, he really has a way with words, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> but before I forget, I have to say that this book begins with a long, what he calls an overture in his pretentious way in which he discusses all his uh, his physical problems, um, where he was on this all-meat diet, which he was touting um, that this is just the best thing, just eat nothing but meat, just meat, 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 meat. And then he became very sick. Um, and ended up, he ended up in a coma in Russia, and he was in this coma. And he was also addicted to um, various uh, prescription meds. And he talks about this on and on and on. See, people who write these books, How to Live, they very rarely have a lot of self-knowledge. That's probably why they think they can tell everybody else how to live. It's, they're not really paying attention. So he had this whole thing with meat and prescription meds. But nonetheless, you should still do everything he says. I think his basic thing, and I was very soft on him, although it doesn't seem that way because I was having fun and being kind of snarky, but... Basically, it appeals to the the kind of rigid anti-woman feelings that some men have where what they really want is a girlfriend and yet and they don't understand why they don't have a girlfriend. What's the matter with these horrible women? <laughs> I hate them. They won't be my girlfriend. Uh, so um, he basically so his other other rules have to do with things like, OK, work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing. And see what happens. So who could disagree with that? Who could um, disagree? And you could see how somebody's kind of adrift in life. That, yeah, I should really find something I, I like doing and I should try to do it really well. Um, that's good. And then uh, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. Well, this is straight out of a women's magazine, <laughs> except I love plan and work diligently. That's some sort of militaristic approach to dating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last rule, be grateful in spite of your suffering. And what's interesting about that is that he acknowledges that people suffer. And yeah. I think in America, it's supposed to, it, we're supposed to be happy all the time. And if you have real serious troubles, you keep them inside. And we don't get a lot of acknowledgement mm -hmm. of, of loneliness of feelings of failure, of all your personal relationships being very difficult, um, all that. And and he he says, yeah, of course you're miserable, and I'm going to fix you. Yeah, well, you know, he does say, there's one other revealing thing related to that. The Amazon page for his new book has an excerpt that begins, don't do work that makes you contemptuous of yourself, feeling weak and ashamed, close quote. Now, 
of course, that's great advice, but it's interesting that he is acknowledging what many of his readers feel, that they feel weak and ashamed and, and contemptuous of themselves. That's pretty radical, as you say, for an American. It is not very American. It's not very manly. Manly is kind of the opposite of those things, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so I think you have a lot of people who feel their life isn't working out and they have to work at a job they hate and maybe they don't feel they're very good at it, but maybe those two things are related. And because people tend not to be really good at things that they don't enjoy or approve of. Um, feminists hate Jordan Peterson. Let's just get that on the table. They hate him. And in fact, the publishing company of this book, the hundreds of the young staffers signed a petition. Don't publish this. Oh man. Um, oh, man. That wasn't going to happen, given that what his sales figures are. But so he's widely hated on the left and especially by feminists. And I think that's fair. Mm. I'm just amazed anybody can get through this book because it's so disastrously badly written. It's so tedious. It reminds me of like you probably have had students that postpone their paper until the night before. And but the paper is long. It's like you have to write 40 pages. And so they just put in everything, everything they have ever known or thought, everything they have read. And that's where you get all this crazy, you know, Isis and Osiris. I'm sure they can come in here somewhere. <laughs> you know? Well, another one that he brings in that I was sort of surprised to see is he, he has a thing about humans are a lot like lobsters. Oh, lobsters. Yeah. What does he mean by that? You can go to his website and there's all these lobster themed things you can buy, like a necktie, uh, a T-shirt, uh, a cover for your cell phone with these little lobsters. <laughs> and uh, the T-shirt, I think, says hail lobster, maybe that or maybe that's the hat, hail lobster. So the lobster, according to him, is very much like people in the following way um, because of some neurological similarity the fact that lobsters are basically hostile and competitive and territorial means that that's the way people are. I saw that you mentioned this, and then I Googled what is the lobster personality, and the first thing that came up was, despite their warlike appearance, lobsters are actually sensitive and delicate animals. That's from the website animalsofaustralia.com. Well, so now I have to feel guilty again for eating lobster rolls. I was, I thought, I thought Jordan Peterson was giving me permission to have as many as I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> then I also found on Google that the Swiss government just passed the law stating people can no longer boil a lobster alive. I'm gobsmacked. What will, <laughs> they'll have to take that famous scene out of Annie Hall, remember? <laughs> My point is he seems to be wrong about lobsters. And many other things as and well. Many other things. For example, women. He said <laughs> for just a take, yes. In in volume two, in the volume I'm discussing, he talks very little about feminism. There's only a couple of mentions because he I think because he got into so much trouble in book one talking about them and feminists. And so, but he says, you know, no matter what feminists say, I've seen it time and time again. What women, all women basically want to have children. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. I think a lot of women wanted to have children, but, you know, maybe 80%. But it's not something all women want. 
But his thing is, okay, all women want to have children. They are being led up the garden path by feminism to focus on their careers. And then wham, bam, it's too late. You know, they've got fertility problems. But another problem they have is men. That I, 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 This is your view. This is your view. This is well, my view. That so, the men so, that this book is written for are not really boyfriend material. Yeah, you you say the basic problem Jordan Peterson is addressing is that men are having a hard time getting quality girlfriends and now have to make more of an effort to be what you call boyfriend material. What uh what is the cause of this problem in your view? In my view, I I think that um they haven't really reckoned with a lot of men haven't really reckoned with feminism and what it requires of them. They still are with the old mindset and then they're constantly surprised when women put them in the friend zone, for example. Um, At this point, I think we have to talk about incels, involuntary celibates. One of the most searched terms on Google last year, it turns out. What, What advice does Jordan Peterson have for incels? Do not allow yourself to become resentful, deceitful, or arrogant. That's rule 11. It's good advice if you can follow it. But incels love Jordan Peterson. I think there's people like his militarism, his rigidity, his kind of straighten up and fly right, like my father used to say. They like, they want that old, that patriarchal thing. And it's not so easy to find that patriarchal thing in a psychologist, which is what he is. You have to go to, you know, a superhero movie to get that. But now you you can have Jordan Peterson. Okay, you don't think Jordan Peterson is a good source of advice, despite the fact that he sold millions of books in dozens of languages. Uh, Have you got anything better to offer as wisdom for how to live these days? Well, um, my husband and I have been reading out loud for a very long time. Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Now, I have to say that uh, the classicist I revere, Mary Beard, thinks the Stoics are terrible people. Um, they're fascists. Marcus Aurelius was just a major war maker, um, which he mentions occasionally in, in the book. But I feel this book has been guiding people through the struggles of life for over a thousand years. And unlike Jordan Peterson, it's well written and it's short. And at the end of my column, I summarize his advice. Okay, rule one, these are better rules than Jordan Peterson's. Rule one, try as hard as you can to be a good, responsible, serious person. Rule two, be aware that much of life is out of your control. You just have to accept that. And rule three, in any case, soon you will be dead. (laughs) Soon you will be dead. Katha Pollitt wrote about Jordan Peterson's advice for men in her latest column. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, I don't care what you say. I'm going to stand up straight from now on. (laughs) Me too. And shoulders back. Shoulders back. (laughs) Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. 
Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. We'll be right back.